We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to Up Kids magazine, Australian Geographic Explorers, for six months for just $25. That's three issues for kids who love our amazing planet and all its animals delivered to your home for just $25. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia underscore explorers. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia underscore explorers. Hi, I'm Angel Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Dita Hockiuli. During the bushfires, cities like Sydney can become arcs for displaced wildlife. Urban ecologist Dita Hockiuli has always been fascinated by the wildlife of our capital cities. On this episode, we talk about urban survivors like the ibis, brushtail and minor bird and why we should embrace them. So I'm really excited to be talking to Dita today on this episode of Talking Australia. Today I'm here with Dita Hoculi at the Hoculi Lab. Dita, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Angela. Now we're going to be talking all about bushfires and urban ecology and our cities. So I'm going to launch in. I recently read that there'd been a bunch of sightings of rainforest pigeons in suburban Sydney and places like that. And I guess the explanation was, oh, the bushfires are kind of pushing them into our cities. Um, and I guess I was curious as to how bushfires impact the ecology of cities and what their role is during bushfires? Are they havens, sort of? Yeah, that's a, a complicated question <laughs> to start. Um, they're certainly in an escape space because they're not burning. So what, the, the sorts of vagrants that people have seen coming through, birds and, and various animals that you wouldn't typically see in the cities have been really interesting with people talking about some of the animals that have popped into their backyards that aren't, aren't typical residents there. Fire, fire in cities is a really interesting question. I'm just t- taking it all the way back. Um, one of the things that people look at is, with fire is it, it could be a management tool. So there's, within cities and city green space, there's actually concerns that a lot of our natural bushland in cities isn't being burnt enough. And that's you've, we probably see why land managers are really reluctant to use those sorts of hazard reduction burns in cities because they're so dangerous if they do get away. But the, your question about, about cities being... Um, havens for things fleeing. I think the scope of the recent uh, 2020 bushfires in, in, in Australia and the, the sheer the extent and the intensity means that a lot of animals have had to do whatever it takes to try and get away. So there's been quite a few reports of things like um, different types of kingfishers, different types of pigeons turning up in places where they typically weren't seen at this time of year. And I remember reading a long time ago about how um, a lot of animals typically with bushfires or with climate change, they could move up, down, around sort of. But now because we live in this kind of fragmented urban world, it's more, it's, I guess, more difficult to do that. So I'm wondering beyond the bushfires, more broadly, should I say, um, how will climate change kind of impact urban ecology in cities, particularly Sydney and Brisbane or Melbourne? Well, climate change really is the, the big game changer with respects to where things live and where they um, might live in the future. There's real concerns over whether our cities are 
have got have got the resilience to cope with elevated temperatures. One or two degrees makes a massive difference to a whole lot of the plants and animals that live in these sorts of areas. So with respects to looking at the things that we currently have in our cities, there's a school of thought that particularly with the plants we've chosen to plant, um, a lot of those plants won't be the right sorts of things to have in 20 or 30 years' time under conditions that are rel relatively hotter. Um, it's, it's a difficult question to... I mean, the, the complexities of, of looking at responses to temperature um, also need to take into account. Nature often finds a way to adapt to a whole range of different things. There's some really interesting research that shows how various animals and plants can adapt to elevated temperatures. Um, it's a pretty strong selection pressure on the things that are living in these cities. So you might end up selecting for the animals and plants that are a little bit more tolerant or capable of, of surviving some of those extremes. So it's a pretty extreme selection pressure in that case. With respects to the broader implications though, you, you mentioned habitat loss and habitat loss is still that, that really significant driver of biodiversity loss globally. And from an Australian perspective, if you said today, what's one thing that we could do to conserve biodiversity on land, the simple question would be stop clearing native vegetation. It's as simple as that. And from a city's perspective, it makes you realise that the bits and pieces that we've actually got left are, are quite precious. They're, they're quite often areas that you might think of as being you know, clapped out chunks of bushland are basically as good as it's going to get in the city. If you've got a few hectares of bushland, they might be weeds throughout it. They might be... Um, what comes to mind while you're explaining this? Yeah, look, a lot of the times, you know, in, in, in cities, and I'll talk about it from a Sydney perspective, we've got a whole lot of small isolated chunks of native vegetation that have persisted throughout suburbia. They're there for a whole bunch of reasons. Some of them have been um, land that was just put aside for the purpose of doing that. Other, others just been land that wasn't developed for some reason or owned by someone that planned to develop it and never did. And they're... The sorts of places that are now quite precious with respects to multiple people wanting to use different areas um, to do different things. So these are these little um, chunks of intact nature in our cities that can contain essentially native vegetation, native flora, native fauna that um, are persisting despite being in a global city like Sydney. And what, what, I, what I mean by them being clapped out chunks of bushland is quite often they're going to have weeds throughout them, quite often there'll be invasive animals moving through them, things that we think of as being um, pests. It's important when we start thinking about um, nature in cities and, and, and putting our values onto it that we actually lower the bar on what we can expect to have. It's almost a miracle that some of these things are actually persisting and the reason it's important to lower the bar, isn't that we have to accept some of the, the damage that we've done, but realise this is as good as it gets in some of these places and it's critical habitat for a whole lot of animals and plants that are still managing to persist in our cities. And the reason a lot of us are quite enthused and passionate about keeping those things is that we there's a massive body of work now that shows it's in our self-interest to keep these chunks of nature in cities. We know that it, it supports well-being, both physical and mental well-being of people, these doses of nature, these opportunities to get a, a taste of everyday nature can lead to um, re restoring calm in people and giving them a chance to just um, enjoy their local environment. So there's this cocktail of reasons that we might want to keep areas that traditionally ecologists haven't valued very much.
And we're going to be going into that a little bit later, but I want to go back to survivors, the, yeah. the things that we do see in cities. What for you kind of springs to mind as the ultimate survivor? Because for me it's a brush turkey because they're adorable as babies, but maybe you have better reasons. Oh, the ultimate survivors. Look, I mean, there's a whole bunch of animals and plants, but I'll focus on the animals. There's a whole bunch of animals that have are persisting and thriving in cities. They're often quite flexible with respect to their, their needs. They often seem to survive and thrive despite the habitats that they're choosing to live in looking reasonably hostile. The ultimate survivors, I mean, the brush turkeys are a great example of an animal that was almost banished from the city through the 20s and 30s, um, being um, harvested for food. And as the cities have regreened and as the pressures on the turkeys have diminished, um, they're recolonising the city at a rapid rate. I, I like them a lot. I think they're, they're, they're a good example of a survivor. They're seemingly oblivious to some of the pressures of everyday city life. They're very um, robust at dealing with people. They are incredibly determined animals. You mentioned the babies that are cute. Um, they'd have to be cute because their parents don't seem to care for them much. Oh. Um, the whole the whole brush tail, oh, sorry, brush turkey parenting um, model is to lay the eggs, make sure they're kept at the right temperature, and then um, as soon as they hatch, wave goodbye to their offspring. But as adults, they're incredibly determined. They do a remarkable amount of gardening to create these mounds that they that the males create a mound for the animals, the um, females to lay their eggs into and they maintain the temperatures. So they're a good example of an animal that seems to be able to cope with the range of pressures. And, of course, there's the ibis. The ibis are a great example of a, of a couple of things. They are really persistent in, in, in Sydney, but there's some interesting work that suggests that they're an animal that actually has moved from inland New South Wales to try and um, um, find habitat and find water, owing to, to shifts in, in climate through drought. And some of the work that's come out of um, looking at where ibis were and where they are now suggests that they may be some of the the earliest climate refugees out there. But now that they've got to the city, they're very, um, again, persistent, robust. They're, I think they're iconic animals. It's no wonder the the Egyptians used to treat their ibis as the, these gods of wisdom. Um, they're, they're quite funny to watch. I think, um, now they're, they're, you know, I'm, I'm working at a, a university campus. It's great fun to see them wandering around. You know, if they steal someone's lunch, it's funny. If they, <laughs> if they steal my lunch, it's not funny. But um, they're, they're a good example. Brush tailed possums are a great example of another animal that seems to have looked at the food we provide and the habitat we provide they're really strong survivors there are other animals that we've brought um, with humans i mean things like um the europeans bringing um rats into the cities rats have had a long you know thousands of year history with people they're really adapted to living in cities now these are animals that you very rarely will see out in in the wild their their whole game is to live with um, with people, rock doves or pigeons, same kind of thing there. They're pretty much you know, reliant on us. But in terms of some of the native species, a whole bunch of them have, have um, certainly noticed that humans have turned up, but they've gone, oh, I can, I can work around this. Um, and some of them are actually making really weird decisions. There's a gorgeous butterfly in the Sydney region called the Blue Triangle, which for, for, for reasons best known to itself, um, seems to prefer feeding on camphor laurels. They're quite a, a pesty weed of a plant rather than eating their native um, um, food. So you know, some of these things, animals um, don't care that they don't have a long evolutionary history with what we'd bring into cities, but they're going, oh, we can work with this. And there's a whole bunch of birds that can do the same. We look at um, both invasive birds like, say, common miners, 
and from a, a native perspective, noisy miners, our, our, our despotic honey eaters have, have come in and they're really persistent birds in our city. So there's a whole bunch, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom for nature in cities. There's a whole bunch of animals and plants that have worked out how to make a living and some of them are, are seemingly thriving. Mm. And I think it was the New York Times editor of the Australian Bureau that mentioned that people living in Sydney should feel so lucky because we do have so many things. Yeah, look, I think I think in Australia, we're, our cities are, are pretty biodiverse, but Sydney's been very lucky for a range of reasons for many of the things that have persisted. Um, we've got national parks to the north, south and west of the city. Um, one of the main reasons we've got those is partly through the foresight of, um, of people wanting to do things like create Royal National Park, one of the world's oldest national parks, but also the land is really steep and really infertile. You couldn't really make much of a living out of it, so... Um, it, it became a fairly easy decision to lock it away for our conservation um, purposes rather than for production purposes. The, the places that are most at risk in, in, say, places like Sydney are the flatter and more fertile places where, which have been cleared for either, um, well, historically for food production and then for um, housing. The other thing that's quite remarkable about Sydney, um, Sydney is that if you've ever taken the ferry from Circular Quay to Manly, you'll see a whole lot of headlands um, that are part of Sydney Harbour National Park. Now, there are, there are very few global cities that have these really nice examples of national parks right in the middle of the city on, on the prime real estate. And the story behind those is essentially that um, since European arrival, Australians have been really scared of foreigners for a long time, so they were all defence lands. The Defence Force had all those things. I mean, I'm not making a case for xenophobia here, but um, the defence... Um, Land had a fence around it. There are, there are still gun emplacements in these sorts of areas. Um, so they were locked off to the broader public. After a 150, 200 years, people realised that anyone coming wasn't going to be coming through the heads um, and we didn't need these guns. So they, those lands were returned to the people of Australia. And we've got these quite extraordinary national parks supporting things like possums, powerful owls, all sorts of things on our doorstep. Um, and you know, so there's a, there's a rich natural heritage and a natural legacy in many of these cities. And, you know, every city in Australia would have some of these iconic species and iconic places in them. I'm wondering how, with all these new species coming in, um, because of climate change, bushfires um, and other factors as well, how have the interactions between these animals changed? Because obviously they're, ha they're having to interact with all these different animals that they're not used to. H how does that work? And have you seen any kind of really unique interactions between animals in cities? Well, the, the probably the most obvious one of the catastrophic interactions between things like um, cats and, and a lot of native um, birds in particular, there's a, a reasonably strong body of evidence now that shows that a lot of the declines of, of some of the iconic birds and small mammals in the city were driven by predation by things like cats. So that's probably a really obvious one. In terms of um, unusual interactions, there's... there's good body of work showing that some native um, insects in particular are quite happy to eat a range of the things we put out in our gardens for, for, for well, I don't, we don't put it out for them, but they are quite happy to eat but them. But maybe we some. should. <laughs> oh, well, you got, in terms of um, managing vegetation in cities for insects, I mean, we, anyone who's a, um, got a passion for entomology will be able to tell you that insects pretty much run the world. We rely on them for so many different things, everything from pollination to nutrient turnover and a lot of the ecological services they provide are central to our way of life so 
Um, even if you, you know, I'm sure some of your your listeners might not like insects that much compared to some of the birds and mammals and plants out there. They're, but, pre- they're pretty big on insects. But, you know, we were, you know, even, you know, again, just catering to our self-interest, we need these animals. And, and Do you think we could accommodate for them better in cities? Oh, yeah. Look, that, that's one of the things that's really at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. A lot of land managers now are really comfortable with the idea of we need or want native pollinators. Um, the roles that insects play in turning nutrients over, turning over, um, or managing or helping manage water relations, um, and just the broader community have a pretty decent understanding of some of the, the the importance of some of these animals. It's a really good example of one of the the everyday interactions with nature you can have. We don't often see, say, our, our big owls or some of our mammals, but having a fantastic array of butterflies or native bees or just um, some of the extraordinary lifestyles you'll see when you actually stop and take the time to look at them really wins people people over very quickly. Even things like spiders, some of the, the orb-weaving spiders we've got are just really fascinating to watch. You watch how industrious they are, their capacity to um, eat some of the things that we don't like. I remember um, your research said that they're bigger in cities, aren't they? Yeah, one, one of my graduate students, Lizzie Lowe, did some really fantastic work that looked at... Um, at spiders throughout the Sydney region on a gradient from uh, the highly urbanised areas to the more natural areas, and she found that they were sort of fatter and, and happier. Well, we, I don't know if they were happy. <laughs> so we, we don't know if they were happier, but you know, I think I think you know, chunky things are often happy. Mm. I think, um, yeah. She so she found that, and, and we related that a little bit to some of the, the potential to avoid natural enemies, but also the um, the amount of food that was in there. She did a lot of work to look at the persistence of these animals in these areas, but it was a really great story. Just to show that some of these animals are probably a little bit oblivious to their surrounds. If they've got their needs met, which are generally going to be food, somewhere to live, and not being eaten by something else, you, you know, they're not going to worry about whether they're in a, a national park mm. or in someone's suburban garden. Yeah, I guess I asked the initial question because I feel like rewilding projects globally have kind of taken off and really captured the imagination, but I imagine that they would be very different in say let's let's just use Sydney as an example, um, rewilding projects in Sydney. Um, what do you? I mean, as an ecologist, what do you envision those rewilding projects looking like in Sydney? I know it's very broad, but if you could zoom in, rewilding is a really interesting um, framing for a lot of ecological questions. A lot of the times, rewilding focuses on on iconic species. The, the classic examples of rewilding focus on returning things like wolves to Yellowstone and. Um, I think there's probably a bigger emphasis to to look at rewilding as a more collective thing in cities. Almost, we we probably talk about it more as a um, a restoration of the ecology of the sites rather than rewilding specifically. Rewilding is quite a loaded term in many ways because there's very few parts of the planet that aren't touched by by human influence. So, a city is an obvious place where human influence is really dramatic. So, we we look at the potential to recreate habitat to provide essentially what we call a nature-based solution, trying to look at the whole package of things that come together. So it involves typically not just trying to return animals to the place but create a place for them to live. There's a school of thought that some of the efforts that go into rewilding are too animal-focused and by all means, um, you know, do the captive breeding, do the the more um, invasive sorts of things. But if there's no decent habitat for the things to live in, then it's seen as a, a bit of a, an exercise in futility. So I think there's a, there's a really big push in cities to look at recreating habitats and probably managing the landscapes rather than focusing on iconic species. Now, with that, it's just worth knowing that sometimes the rewilding efforts focus very much on 
target species you're trying to get it back but um, things like collections of native bees are a great example there, there's very few people out there that don't like native bees they're very likable animals they do something important they come in lots of colors so this push to create things like bee hotels or provide habitat for them to to forage in and live in is a really big part so some, perhaps with respects to rewilding it's probably a case where you're actually aiming for a big collective approach rather than focusing on so, patches um yeah or, or managing patches and trying to make sure that it's not just a, fo a focus on one or two iconic species like um I don't know, returning koalas to the city or returning um, tiger quolls to the city or something like that. It's more of a, can we take this one or two hectares of, of bush and make it better? Or can we take these pastures and recreate a, a habitat that will encourage a lot of different things to come back? So there's probably a bigger push for restoration rather than rewilding per se in the cities. Mm. And I wanted to touch on something that we actually discussed with um, ecologist Aaron Jones a few podcasts ago, and he talked about how obviously his thing is bird feeding, and yep. he mentioned that when he had initially started this research, everyone kind of looked at him like, "Oh, why would you do that? You should, if you're an ecologist, you should be out in rainforests and doing these, you know, um, incredible kind of works." And I know you've been, you know, um, in. I know you've been in the field of urban ecology for a really long time now, and I'm wondering. If you could speak to, I guess, that shift in mentality, like from wanting to, from the focus on these worlds outside of our cities to saying, wait a second, this stuff going on in the cities is actually really important. Yeah, in, in terms of unpacking that, the, the, one of the biggest things you've mentioned there is that urban ecology has become a, a discipline that's been recognised in, in its own right. It used to be seen as essentially the... um almost like being, you know, at the kids' table at conferences. It wasn't seen as being a really important part of the colleges, almost seen as a novelty thing. That that realisation that an overwhelming majority of the world's population live in urban environments and their, their taste of ecology is going to be in cities has meant that the discipline's got some really um, significant traction and then the science has developed quite significantly. Now, um, Daryl's work is really um, informative in that. He's done a an incredibly good job doing two things. One is making a case for why feeding birds isn't as bad as people might have thought that it might be. And really importantly, he said, well, given that people are going to feed birds regardless of what we say, how can we do it better? And that's recognising the human dimensions of managing landscapes and conservation. Ecologists are a surprisingly conservative group of people. I don't mean politically conservative, but they tend to like things like they were. There's, you know, you can, you know, 20 years ago in Australian ecology, the the goal would have been to return our landscapes to what they would have looked like on the 25th of January 1788 before European arrival. I think there's this, a widespread understanding now that the world has changed dramatically in that time. Uh, in places like cities, there are whole um, suites of pressures that are driving. Um, the, 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 the ecological systems in those areas. So there's a widespread um, desire now to say, well, we know a lot about this stuff. How can we make it useful to the people that might be engaging with it? So with respects to bird feeding, you're correct. 20 years ago, you know, people thought you shouldn't feed native animals. You shouldn't be feeding them at all. What um, that does, though, is, is ignores the fact that if they're the things in our backyard, the things we have our, our everyday engagements with, it's really important that we 
do those and get the chance to do them well. And just by giving the decent advice to I don't know, not throw bread at ducks, you know, there's, you know, even and, and teaching people that different birds need different things. They have different habits, different um, food preferences and different food needs. Both of them, the, there's two books that Daryl has put together and both of them make a really compelling case for people are going to feed birds. It's probably good for the people to feed birds. The birds can probably do okay out of it too. And I think it's a really nice link to the fact that um, we tend to have this top-down approach where humans, how can we make things better for nature? But it's also good to realise that nature makes things better for us. And you know, the, I mentioned self-interest before. Those engagements with, with birds particularly if they're unusual birds in your backyard, are really special for people. You know, as much as I'd love the idea of going to the Dane Tree or going up to the Great Barrier Reef or going to the Top End, you know, my, my, my interactions with nature tend to be walking through inner Sydney, so I still get excited by Ibis and you know, the odd coal every now and again, the noisy miners, and that's, you know, that's as good as it'll get in my little walk to work, so I love seeing those things. Mm. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Dieter. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Dita Hockuli. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.